Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, back to Psalm 29. As I said, the occasion for this psalm seems to be the arrival of a massive storm. Then, as now, the power of a storm is an awesome thing. You see the dark clouds coming. Wind bends the trees. Soon lightning electrifies the air. Thunder shakes your house and rumbles through your chest. In our day, we might be amazed by a storm's power, but we so often just think of it as a merely natural phenomenon. It's just something that happens. There's no meaning behind it. It's just moisture and unstable air and wind. It's powerful, but impersonal. In the ancient Near East, however, it was believed that storms were driven from behind by a personal force. And so every storm was full of meaning. They often believed that a storm was a powerful manifestation of their deity's anger. And that made them scramble to try to find a way to appease that deity. And so the storm's power was personal, but hostile. And yet their desperate sacrifices did nothing to divert the storm or to lessen its power. But you can imagine, you can picture David standing on the roof of his palace and looking out, he sees a storm coming off the Mediterranean. He tracks it as it passes through the land from Lebanon in the north all the way down the length of Israel to Kadesh in the south. And in this psalm, we hear him respond to that storm with humility and joy. That nothing about the storm is meaningless. Nothing about the storm is impersonal. There is a person behind it, and it is the Lord, Yahweh. The covenant name of God, which out of reverence is translated as the Lord in all caps. That, that name appears 18 times. In these 11 verses, David sees the personal power of Yahweh in and above this storm. But David also understands that the storm reveals nothing about God's hostility. It's not raw mercurial power on display. Rather, above and behind the thunderheads, he sees what one writer calls the towering majesty of the Lord who thunders in judgment against his enemies, yet speaks peace over his people. In the storm, David sees the personal glory of the Lord as well as his power, power that is not wielded arbitrarily in this world, but rather wielded on behalf of his people to bless them. And so what do you see in the storm? Do you see the towering majesty of the Lord? I'm not just talking about the summer thunderstorm. Do you see his glory and strength behind the storms of this life? Whose voice do you hear in and above the storms raging in our culture today? Do you hear the voice of doom? The voice of some hostile force? Or do you hear the voice of the Lord whose strength breaks the strong and shakes the earth? 
Do you rest in the confidence that behind and above every storm, there is a person who is stronger than strong, whose glory is seen in all that he does? Most of us, if we're being honest, we would say we don't always have the eyes to see him clearly. We don't always have the ears to hear him properly. Looking at the hurricanes in our culture, our families, the hurricanes in ourselves, our faith often falters. We get confused. We get despondent. We get afraid. We get distracted or deceived by the enemy or just by our own flesh who fosters feelings of fear and does nothing to promote the deep, wide peace that Yahweh gives to his people. But the grace of this psalm is how it urges us to look past, look again past the storm to him who sits above it. Look past the storm and believe again that the world is not controlled by meaningless chance or hostile forces. Rather, this world is governed by the voice of the Lord, and it's heard in all of his works. So follow with me the movement of this psalm as it protects us from being deceived. It protects us from being despondent. Follow David as he follows the storm, so that amid the storms of your life, you, too, might rest because you see the God of glory and strength reigning above it all. To see him, we're going to follow this psalm in four steps. First, we're going to see the Lord in heaven. Second, we're going to hear him as the Lord who speaks. Third, we'll see him enthroned for judgment. And finally, we'll see him enthroned to bless his people. Look first at the Lord of heaven. Look at verses 1 and 2. David addresses these verses to the heavenly beings, that is, to the angels. He summons those who stand in the presence of the Lord to do what they were created to do. To adore the Lord. First by ascribing, that is, by naming, the, by naming as gods the qualities that actually belong to him. And, and then second, to adore him by worshiping the Lord, literally bowing down before him. Now those qualities that are named as belonging to the Lord here are glory and strength. We'll talk more about that in a bit. And bowing and this bowed down worship of the Lord in splendor of holiness, it says, seems to speak not so much of the creature's holiness but of the Lord's, as they bask in the glory of His holiness. And this language of glory and holiness, it, it should call to mind other parts of the story to us. It should call to mind Isaiah's vision of the Lord on His throne from Isaiah 6, with seraphim above Him calling out to one another. Listen to what they say. Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Another writer points out how holy speaks of who God is in his person. And glory speaks of everything that proceeds from him. But the glory of his name, the Lord, 
his name is the explicit revelation, the revealing of who he is. And it's given to his servants in his words and in his worship. I'm sorry, in, in his words and his work. And so then, true worship reflects the greatness of who he is back to him in love and wonder, just like we sang before. And if this adoration of who God is is appropriate in heaven, we know that it's fitting for us here on earth because we were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You, you were made to see who He is and respond with heart and hands and voices declaring the glory of God. And this call to adore God for who He is and what He's done is all the greater for you and me. Because we have seen His glory and strength in His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This mind-engaged, wills-submitted worship is vital for us when the storms come. When the thunderheads form on the horizon of our family or church or culture, we must see what is not seen. We must believe again in what is veiled by the clouds that the storms on earth do not stop the worship of heaven. Because the God of heaven has not changed and does not change. He remains always the God of glory and strength. And if you will turn your mind, if you will turn your heart to remember who he is, what he's like, then you too, even in the storm, you too may experience the creaturely pleasure that comes from looking beyond what is created to the creator who is forever blessed. But what we see next is how, how this transcendent Holy One who is veiled by the clouds, how He does not hide Himself from those on the earth. This is the second step of the psalm, showing us that the same Lord of heaven is the Lord who speaks on the earth. Look with me at verses 3 through 9. The voice of the Lord is mentioned seven times in these verses. And it is immediately recognized to be the sound of thunder. But the focus throughout this is that the thunder is not proclaiming the power of nature. It proclaims the power of the Creator Himself. Because out above the many waters, which was always a symbol of chaos and danger in the ancient world, Above the waters, the God of glory speaks thunderously. It's as if he's speaking to us, saying, you know how wild and unruly this world may be. I'm wilder yet. You can't control the power of water when it rages. I made the water, and I control it with my word. Isn't this exactly? 
exactly what we see in our Lord Jesus, who quieted the storm, saying, Hush, be still. The waves recognize the voice of the one who made them. Shouldn't we? And so his voice dominates the most chaotic forces in this world. But look next at how widely his power goes. In verse 5, the strong cedars of Lebanon in the far north of Canaan are broken by him. In verse 6, Syrian, which is another name for Mount Hermon, also in the north, skips like a young wild ox because of his voice. In many parts of the world, animals are often brought indoors during the winter to protect them. And many give birth there so that the young only know the limits of a small pen for the first months of their lives. But have you ever seen what happens when they get released? When a calf gets its first taste of freedom in the wild world, it leaps and dances. The imagery here is that the thundering power of Yahweh is so great that the mountains themselves leap and bound like that. It's a powerful storm. But when David hears that thunder, he not only hears God's power over nature, but also his power over every earthly power, including the power of men. He sees, he hears the same thing that the Lord later told Isaiah, who said, The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, same imagery, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In the light of that coming day, Isaiah then adds this word of application. Stop regarding man. For what account is he? Like Isaiah, when David hears the thunder that breaks the cedars, that shakes the earth from the northern mountains to the southern deserts, that shakes the oaks and strips bare the forest, David hears rumblings that promise, as another put it, the day of the Lord when cedars and mountains, with everything that man finds impressive, will finally be brought low. In other words, in the thundering voice of the Lord, David hears the promise of final judgment. And in that promise, there is affliction for those who are comfortable. And there is comfort for those who are afflicted. Because the thundering voice of the Lord says to the proud who resist Him, who reject Him, it says to the proud that their strength will be broken on that day when the Lord shakes the earth. And so do not refuse Him who is speaking. 
humble yourself before him because today is the day of salvation, not yet of judgment. But for all of you who, like David, have humbled yourselves before the Lord, confessing your sin and receiving by faith his gracious pardon, then for us, the thunder can actually elicit a very different response. When David hears the thunder, knowing all that it portends, he does not shrink back in fear. He actually leans forward with longing. He, he's exhilarated by the voice of his God that promises the end of every proud power. He welcomes them. The message of this storm, the proclamation that God's power over chaos and proud men is absolute. Yahweh's voice shakes the strongest of the strong on the earth. And whether he shakes the cedars and mountains and oaks of this world in the storm today, or if his voice lays it all bare on the last day, all who worship in Yahweh's temple on earth and his temple in heaven will cry with one word, with one voice, glory. Glory. It's the one word that fits. Because glory carries in it the idea of something being so heavy with significance that it outweighs the rest of the world. Seeing the strength and majesty of Yahweh in the storm, hearing his voice, glory is the one word response for anyone who understands that compared to the Lord, everything else is a feather on the scales, a grain of sand on the scales. Glory is the response for all who embrace him with joy and humility. For you and me today, we say glory because we have seen Jesus' glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We today say glory because we have seen in Jesus the strength of the Lord. His power that Mary glorified when the angel told her that she would be the mother of the Savior King. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We say glory because we have seen the coming of Christ who came not in judgment but in mercy. Jesus himself said that he didn't come to bring condemnation. He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn, but to save those who believe in him. Anybody who knows themselves, any, any of us who know our sinfulness, we know that he could by right thunder against us because of our proud rebellion against him. But instead, he went to the cross to die in our place satisfying God's justice. As we sang earlier, by his death, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has washed us by his blood and brought us close to God. And now risen from the dead, our powerful king thunders for us 
He, he has subdued us to himself by his grace. And now he protects us so well that not even a hair can fall from our heads apart from the will of our Father in heaven. In Christ, we know that everything today, everything the world finds impressive and every suffering and every trial and every storm of this life, it's all light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is soon to be revealed and enjoyed by those who hope in God. So we say glory. And we welcome the message of the storm, even as we follow David into this third step of the psalm. As we see the Lord enthroned for judgment. Look, look with me at the first part of verse 10. I'll be brief here. When David says the Lord sits, or better, sat, enthroned over the flood. He uses a word, for that word flood, it only appears in one other place. In the story of Noah's flood, in Genesis 6 through 11. It's a word that's only ever used in reference to Noah's flood. And so here David is inviting us to look back. Back to the flood to remember that in Noah's day, the natural forces of the earth were unleashed not by fluke, but by sovereign purpose to judge the inhabitants of the earth. I, I wish we had more time to explore this, but in short, David sees in the storm, in every storm, the reminder that God is the judge of men. He calls us to see God and his kingly rule over everything that he's made, including us, because he's foreshadowing Again, the day when everyone must give account to him who sits on the throne. Because although Christ first came in mercy, his promise is that he will come again, bringing judgment. And for those who have not run to him for refuge, who have not embraced him as the Savior King, then there is coming a day when they will be swept away like those in Noah's day. Not in a flood of water, but in the crashing wave of God's justice rolling down. But just as after the flood came God's covenant promise and His covenant sign of His war bow hung in the clouds, aiming not toward earth, but toward heaven itself. So David rests in the knowledge that while the Lord is enthroned for judgment, he is also enthroned to bless his people. This is the last point. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Because as one writer puts it, this psalm that began with glory to God in the highest concludes with peace on earth. Knowing that the Lord sits enthroned as king forever, there in verse 10, David also grasps Something that you and I need to hold on to as well. The Lord whose kingly power and glory are glimpsed in the storm aims to use his power on behalf of his people. Giving them two things. Giving them strength. And giving them peace. Augustine wrote, the Lord will give strength to his people. Fighting against the storm and whirlwinds of this world. Because peace in this world 
He has not promised them. The Lord will give you strength as you embrace Him by faith. He will give you strength because He knows that the storms of this life can leave us beaten down, weary, and feeling as powerless as we are. And I know that some of you are feeling that weakness. The weariness of body and soul that comes from being in the storm for so long. May the Lord fulfill this promised blessing of strength for you. As you lift up your eyes to Christ who went through the same storms as you and me. And so he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. May his spirit make you strong in the strength of the Lord, of his, in the strength of his might, even as the same power that drives the storms and raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. But beyond the promise of strength for today comes the promise of peace. And that is a promise that is in part for today, even if it's most fully for the age to come. The, that peace, of course, is so much more than the absence of war. That peace, the shalom of God, is the state of being in which everything necessary for human flourishing is present. And so that phrase, with peace, one writer said, spans this entire psalm like a rainbow. And already this peace is yours in Christ. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. By his blood, Jesus has made peace with God for you. Restoring you so that you will more and more flourish. In all the ways that God intends you. And yet we also know that that full flourishing Full peace will never be complete until Christ comes. Until He comes, bringing both judgment and salvation. But just as every storm is a reminder of that day, we can, with David, gladly receive its message with renewed hope and longing. Because knowing the Lord who speaks through the storm as the Creator and Redeemer revealed through His Word, we have the eyes to see His glory in everything that He has made. Everything calls to mind His strength, His promise to make everything right. Everything that's wrong in the world, He'll make it right through Jesus our Lord. And so with one singer, we can say, Now I can see that the world is charged. It's glimmering with promises. Written in a script of stars, and it's dripping from the prophet's lips. But still, my thirst is never slaked. I'm hounded by a restlessness. I'm eaten by this endless ache. But still, I will give thanks for this. Because I can see it in a sea of wheat. I can feel it when the horses run. It's howling in the snowy peaks. It's blazing in the midnight sun, just behind the veil of wind, a million angels waiting in the wings, a swirling storm of cherubim making ready for the reckoning. And when that reckoning comes, when that storm breaks, 
You who have run to Christ for refuge, you will not shrink back. You will not be broken. You will not be shaken in that storm. Seeing him who loved you and gave himself up for you, you will lift up your voice with all in his temple and cry that one word with one voice, glory. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you for this word, for this hope that we have in Christ. That our King is indeed reigning for us. That your infinite power is being wielded on our behalf. Father, glorify yourself in this great salvation you are accomplishing for us. Lord, turn our hearts and our minds to respond to you by faith. Entrusting ourselves to you in every storm that we face. Knowing that you are coming soon. When you come, we will be able to say glory because Christ laid down his life for us to bring us to you. Father, lift us, keep us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.